Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding, a place dedicated to the discussion of Christian faith in 21st century life. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So join us as we endeavor to understand 21st century life through the lens of Christian faith. I'm your host, Alan Bevere, pastor, professor, author, and lover of Five Alarm Food. Come and seek with me. All right, good day to everybody. This is uh, the YouTube channel, Faith Seeking Understanding. I am Alan Bevere. I'm a pastor and a professor, and I am a lover of baseball, and so is my guest today, Scott McKnight. Scott, are we going to be sitting in the stands this summer, you think? or? You know, I think we will eventually, but, yeah. um, you know, my son was... Um, was in the Cubs organization for 20 years yeah. and uh, he resigned and he's now working for an analytics company. Yeah. This is no kidding. They put a helmet on someone and they watch the pitchers in the major leagues so that you can practice batting against that pitcher. Wow. In a, in a, it's something that fits on the helmet in the head. So you watch, you're watching Trevor Bauer pitch. Yeah. That's <laughs> and amazing. now they're designing they're designing a bat that you swing yeah. and it will tell you your contact on the ball that Trevor Bauer threw. Oh man. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Isn't it? It is. Well, I'm hoping we'll get yeah. to, to see some baseball up close and personal. That's I think, not, that, I that's think it'll the, happen. I yeah, think it's we'll one of the great the joys of my summers and I didn't get it last year. So yeah. Oh, well, so anyway, Scott, I'm, I'm, we're going to be talking about your book, A Church Called Tove. So as we get into that first thing, uh, tell, uh, tell us a little something about yourself. Well, everybody should know that I know Alan because both of us did our PhDs with the eminent and illustrious James D.G. Dunn. Yeah. So we became, we've been friends probably longer than either of us care to admit. Yeah, it's been, it's been... Uh many years yeah you know i realized i was writing someone this morning i realized i began my phd 40 years ago yeah so but um i um i grew up in the midwest uh northwest illinois uh our, my father was a high school teacher my wife's father was her was a high school teacher at the same school so chris and i grew up together um, and then uh, finished college, uh, did a seminary degree at Trinity. Mm -hmm. Then uh, we packed up our bags with our two children and moved to Nottingham, England. And I worked with Jimmy Dunn uh, before Alan Bevere did. And uh, then I I've been teaching as a professor for almost, uh, you know, going on 37, 38 years, something wow. like that. Mm. At, uh, this is my third institution, Northern Seminary. Uh, it's a Baptist seminary. We have no full-time Baptist professors. I'm an Anglican. We have Reformed, Christian Missionary Alliance, Methodist. So uh, we're all over the map and we're not really a Baptist seminary in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, we are ecumenical and we uh, welcome all. And uh, I serve in an Anglican church as a deacon, and I preach, and I write, and I'm a professor. Chris is a psychologist. 
our two children, one of us an adult, they're both adults teaching uh, one public school and the other one involved in baseball analytics and technology. Excellent. You want Excellent. more? <laughs> no, that is that is really, really good. And you know, as you're saying, you, you did started your work with Jimmy 40 years ago. I was just doing some math in my head. I started mine. It'll be 30 years ago this year. Yeah. Oh. So oh. Time, time moves on. Anyway. Oh, I know. I mean, and you know, um, I mean, with Jimmy passing this year, yeah. it's sad, but uh, he had such an impact on so many. And I, you know, I bump into people all the time uh, who are in our circle of professors. So it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty neat. We, we uh, have been blessed. In we have been, Jimmy. we have been. It was a joy to work with him and, and uh, study with him. And I, I like to tell the story as I was putting my dissertation together for its final thing. And I just apparently wasn't uh, wasn't uh, getting what Jimmy was trying to help me out with, and I had a conversation with him on the phone one day because I was back here in the United States, and he was real tough on me. And uh, he finally said, "He said I don't understand why you're just not getting this." And <laughs> it really shook the fear, put the fear of God into me. <laughs> and uh, of course, I got my PhD. But you know, I, I I look back on some of that and think that because of his uh, not only often um, uh, uh, wise counsel, but sometimes his uh, tough counsel. It was good, yeah. you know. His job well, wasn't he, his job wasn't to uh, to hold my hand. His job was to make sure I no. produced something that uh, would be acceptable. So yeah, and and uh, it's not just what he thinks. He knows there's going to be an external examiner. Absolutely, absolutely. And I remember yeah. I sent I sent him a paper. He asked me for a paper on gospel methodology and I sent him a paper and I was in his living room because at the time we were living in Cambridge and he was at Nottingham teaching at Durham yeah and oh did he push me hard and I got back on the train and went to Cambridge and just wondered if I should just get off the train pack up the bags and go home so I called him the next day and he said you know I've never treated another student like this but he said I think I, I did it because I think you can handle it and uh, he said, I was harder than I needed to be, uh, but there's some things you need to think about. And yeah. from that point on, you know, it was really, yeah. well, I was only his fourth student. So, yeah. so you were, you were. No, no, years. I got, well, I got the more seasoned Jimmy Dunn, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, I, I always think about that. And it was instructive for me, yeah. you know, as, as we have then advised students that, you know, we're not yeah. there to 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 uh set them up with kind words to fail necessarily so yeah, anyway we need to get into the book we could reminisce yes. all day but but uh yeah. by the way before we get into the book per se uh tell me a little about a little bit about laura berenger she's got yeah. uh, an author uh line here in this book and i would hate not to at least make some recognition of her laura berenger is my daughter i didn't realize that <laughs> Do you say that in the book? I, uh, it's Laura mentions it, I think, in the first chapter. I it's missed not, that. They, uh, she, she, she and I wrote a book uh, for children. She wrote it. Okay. And it was Laura McKnight Berenger, but Tyndale uh, took her middle name, took McKnight out of it. Okay. And, and Laura takes it as a great uh, badge of honor okay. when people wonder how she got involved in the book. Okay, well, well, now that I'm looking so at her picture on the jacket, I can see her mother. 
I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I didn't, I didn't check, notice that at first. Well, how great is that to uh, have, have a, have your daughter work with you on this project? Well, here, I mean, she's, uh, I would, we would never, I would never have been involved in this book had she not been so persistent yeah. in, she and her husband were very much involved at Willow Creek yeah. and really struggled with what happened with people yeah. Yeah. who struggled with what happened okay. and were pretty hard on her. Yeah. And I would say to her, this is what you need to say. This is what's going on. This is a misinterpretation of scripture, et cetera. And so after a while, she said, Dad, you need to put some of these things together because the, pe the people aren't hearing this. Yeah. So it became um, my first blog post, which, which, which put me in the orbit of this conversation about Willow Creek yeah. uh, was that blog post. So, uh, but wow. she was very persistent and Alan, she found most of the stories yeah. and some of the other details. And then she edited what I wrote and then I edited what she wrote and it's very much a joint project. Excellent. She had contributions on nearly every chapter. I All mean, right. every paragraph. Well, I am great. I am boy. I'm glad I asked that question. I'm glad to know that. So let's uh, let's begin with the book Church Called Tove, and you, you sort of broached it just a little bit there. Why did you write this book? Well, Alan, I'm let a me, professor. Let me show it here so people yeah, can okay. see it. A church called Tove. Yeah. All right. There you go. All right. Now, why did you write the book? Well, I teach in a seminary. Uh, we went to Willow Creek for 10 years. Laura and Mark went to Willow Creek for 20 years. Mark was on staff there. Willow Creek had a big influence in our life and we care about Willow Creek. But we didn't write this book be, uh, for Willow Creek or simply because of Willow Creek. We wrote it because of what happened at Willow Harvest Chapel, which is uh, another church in Chicagoland, the Southern Baptist churches, the Roman Catholic churches, uh, sovereign grace. These churches where pastors are collapsing, and when the curtain is pulled back, we're discovering all kinds of toxicity. Mm -hmm. So I had students asking me, I'll never forget the day a student calls me and says, point blank, Scott, what can I do now so that I don't become James McDonald later? And Alan, this was a really big question for me. And I began to talk about this in class. And I would talk about culture that was forming in churches and that leaders have an impact on culture. Uh, that behind culture is character. You know, you've heard this line from Peter Drucker that strategy eats, is it culture eats strategy for breakfast? Yeah. My line is character eats culture and strategy for breakfast. Right. So our character matters. So I wanted to work on what are the characteristics of a good culture? Um, and I started using the word goodness and pastors and friends said, man, that's a great word. So I started studying Tov in the Hebrew Bible, which occurs so often. It's a master moral category. Yeah. And I said, that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to use Tov as our arch category and mark out characteristics of Tov that will help form churches that won't abuse women, children, boys, others, and won't power, have power mongering 
abuse and authority abuse and will not be comfortable with a narcissistic type leader. So, that, so we started working on those topics. And frankly, the, the seven characteristics that we found of Tove that we sketch are, are mapped onto characteristics of toxicity in churches. Yeah. So we didn't just sit down with the fruit of the spirit or uh, the Beatitudes and say, this is what you need. Uh, and that, that's a little bit artificial. We, uh, we wanted to dig down a little bit and what are the uh, characteristics of toxicity in churches? Yeah. And then what's the biblical antidote? So, so we wrote that way. We wrote it that way, but um, I fought. I told Laura, I have other things I'm working on. I don't need to do this. But Alan, this is the strangest thing for me. I had a revelatory moment reading, of all things, a book about how the German pastors responded to the Holocaust. Yeah. And I thought, this is how pastors respond when allegations come forward. And I started marking down characteristics. What, what, how do they respond? And I found so many parallels that I began to explore from that point on thinking, I think I found an idea. And I told Laura this over on a Christmas vacation trip we were with them. I said, I, I think I've found some uh, categories that are worthy of writing about. And it turned into a chapter we call false narratives. So Alan, that's sort of the background of why we wrote it. Okay. So what it was, it was, so a couple things interested me. Well, let me, let me uh, just, for those who haven't read the book, and I'm hoping what will result in this is that there will be people who will get this book, including and pastors. Some of my colleagues need to read this book. But uh, you're, you're, uh, you talk about Tove churches, good churches, nurture culture that includes empathy, grace, people first, truth, justice, service, and Christ-likeness. And you have those in a circle, one leading into the other. Yeah. Um, and... Go ahead. You look like you're going to say. Yeah, something. I don't think I would. I, I uh, we messed with the order. I don't believe that um, the Christ likeness is is all seven combined. Yes. But yep. um, the first two are because we we started as, as a result of our editor's suggestion of the two main characteristics of a toxic pastor and a toxic church culture: narcissism and power through fear. From that point on. We just, the, the next four are just sort of random. Yeah. And you, you can take them in order, but we call it the circle of Tove. And these things are interlocking. You know, um, I, I, I told Laura, we're not going to use any pastors in churches that we know today as our examples, because those, that may turn out to be the wrong one. We yeah. used a dead man, Mr. Rogers, as our primary example. Yeah. And Alan, I've, I've told people this. Every church deserves a pastor with the with the character the character of Mr. Rogers, and I really believe that. I think, I mean, none of us is perfect, and Mr. Rogers seemed to be a pretty nice guy. Yeah. But um, we need people like this in our churches instead of um, our images of success as uh, big churches and lots of money and handsome and beautiful wives and you know children going to Harvard. Instead of using that as our image of, of a pastor, we want to use the image of someone, you know, Jesus is mm -hmm. the ultimate model. Paul's not bad. 
but uh, I we used Mr. Rogers. Uh, yeah. I was quite impressed with him. Yeah, I, I uh, so so let's talk. So a couple of things. Let's let's first talk about the issue of character, which I really much appreciated your emphasis on that. I you know I studied with Stanley Harawas, so I've got character emblazoned on my brain and and virtue yeah. and the importance of that. But we do seem to we do seem to have bought into the idea, and I mean maybe this goes along with uh, what you're talking about in, in reference to the churches and, and how the churches view themselves. We almost we seem to have bought bought into the idea that what's really important with our leaders is not so much that they're people of upstanding moral character, although we don't want them to be you know. Uh, really bad, but we want them to, we, we're more interested in how they function. We're more interested in their effectiveness. So we're willing to put a little bit of character to the side. If you've got a pastor who say brings young families in or grows the church budget. And so we are willing to excuse some bad behavior at times. Is that a fair comment or not? Oh, Sometimes we, I think we, we do this far more often than we should be doing. Yeah. And it's, and it is true. Look, a lot of churches succeed. I mean, they won't succeed if they don't have a certain amount of budget, right? To get a certain amount of budget. You got a certain number of butts in the seats, right? To get that many butts in the seats, you got to have this kind of charismatic personality when you preach on Sunday morning. Now, all of a sudden, what really matters is the budget rather than character. And I, and I think that um, everybody is to blame. Yeah. I think churches are to blame. I think seminary professors are to blame. I think the pastors are to blame, the lay people. Are, we just have, have created a system that is not conducive to valuing character. Yeah. And yet, Alan, all of us know this. When we meet someone, who is tove to the core, mm -hmm. we say, now that's what we need as an example. Yeah. And um, I, I, think, I think we should, we should focus a lot more on that. It's not, it's, you know, I, I put pressure on myself as a seminary professor to work with students in this way, but I have them for, some of them for one year, some of them for off and on for three or four years. And that's, this is a lifelong process of, of character formation. And we need to value that. Now, the other side of this, Alan, and I, I know you know about this because of your excellent work on ethics, but the ancient world learned ethics by emulation, not by information and instruction. Now, yes, there was instruction. But the key is you wanted to be like that teacher. Right. So the disciples of Jesus wanted to be with him. This is what Mark tells us right away. Matthew does too. They wanted to be with him. And Paul has got the guts to say, imitate me, copy me, follow me, do it the way I do it as I follow Christ. And you got to think that people thought John was pretty cool when he's, you know, he's always talking about love and, you know, love does this and couldn't create a sentence on his Apple computer without the word. Every time he hit period, the word love appeared yeah. next and he had to create another sentence. 
So I think emulation is something we need to value more and say to our uh, students, um, do people want to be like you? Yeah. When I get, Alan, I know you get this kind of question a lot more than I do because of your position, but I'll have students several times a year say to me, do you think I should be a pastor? And I always ask them two questions. Who are you pastoring now? And who now sees you as the pastor? And they'll say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'll say, no, I want you to know something. Pastoring is not a job. Pastoring is a gift. Mm -hmm. Those who are pastors, pastor people. And people see them as a pastor. Now, of course, if you're 19 years old and you just discovered your pastoral gift, you know, you might not be pastoring. Although I do know college students do a lot of pastoring of one another. Uh, I, I experienced that. But, but um, at the age of the students that I see, this is a potent question. And then I always bring it back to, um, you have to be the kind of character that people want to be like, and then they want you to be their pastor. Yeah. So I know you've got more to say about this than I do. No, no. That, well, that's really good. I, I appreciate that. I, I wonder sometimes if we've created a monster that's just difficult now to get our arms around uh, in tame, because when you talked about uh, the budgets, um, you know, being a mainline pastor, uh, you know, we've got a, a lot of, most of our churches are in decline overall in reference to numbers and things like that. And pastors are going now into churches where the building is a product of the, hay, the heyday, right? When, when yeah. the rooms were full and money was coming in. And so they built these big buildings. And now the buildings are too large for the congregation and but they want to keep the building. Yeah. And yeah. so pastors are sent in and we may, we may pay lip service to what you've just said about the problem, but when it comes to actually performing, what we really end up defaulting to is focusing back on uh, the problems that are not necessarily going to help nurture the church toward a tove congregation. Yeah. I mean, you, you end up trapped. Yeah. We've got to have enough money to pay for this building. That means enough butts in the seats. We've got to have the kind of person that can attract butts in the seats, keep them there, and keep their pocketbook loose yeah. in that pocket. And uh, this, is, um, this is not conducive to Christian discipleship. Right. In our day, look, it's not just main lines that are declining. And uh, the evangelical church can say all at once, but it's not doing so well either. Yeah. Um, so the non-denominational churches, some of them are growing like crazy, of course. They've got dynamic teachers that entertain everybody on Sundays. But um, uh, it's time for all of us to sit back and to begin to think, what, what's it going to take to be a pastor in this congregation for 10 years? What kind of character? We, uh, you, know, you know, both of us studied in England. Those, those churches are struggling a lot more even than the United States. Yeah. And this is the same thing I hear from them. It's about character. It's about character. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've said, I've, you know, I'm in my 36th year of pastoral ministry. I, I've said that if I could do it again, uh, and I can't, and that's okay, but if I could do it again, I would probably want to found a congregation and rent some storefront 
empty storefront in downtown and have a congregation right there in the midst of the crossroads uh, and just pay rent as opposed to having to always focus on making sure that we pay the utilities. Uh, you You're know. not the first one that said this to me. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard this a number of times. And uh, here, here our, our small congregation just bought a building. Yeah. Um, and, and we're doing well, it's not a problem. But um, yeah, the, uh, the heyday when money was easier uh, more people were living in in those neighborhoods where those churches were built. Uh, those days are gone, and and uh, we have we have skeletons, we have structures that we'd love to preserve. They're beautiful. The the good people of God mm -hmm. paid for those things, and you know we don't want to just knock them down and give them away. But um, it's really hard, and it's I I feel bad for the young pastors who are trying to make it work. And, um, you know, let's pray that, that there's a, some kind of revival and resurgence of interest in the church. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, we certainly hope so. I do. I feel for my uh, young colleagues because uh, they're facing challenges. You know, when I was first starting out, we had the same challenges, but there were still, still enough money coming in and enough people in the pews that we, we could ignore it, right? Mm. Now we can't uh, yeah. because it's there. Um, so, so let's, I want to talk about what a Tove church, how a Tove church church looks. And by the way, let me state for the record that I'm very blessed right now because I serve a church that I think is a Tove church. Oh, that's great. Um, I, I cannot say that, uh, throughout my ministry completely. Uh, I will not name <laughs> names, um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, but right now I am blessed with a Tove church. So I, I want to, I want to say that, um, so why are we, so, so before we get into the toe, let's talk toxic. What attracts people to narcissistic leaders? Well, uh, this, is a, this is a billion dollar question. I believe that narcissistic personality types love power and authority and glory. Um, Chuck DeGroat has just written a book called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And one of the things he said the other day to me is that grandiosity is a characteristic of narcissists mm -hmm. and that and they said this he said let's face it scott you and i professors um and we preach you can't really get up on that platform and not have a little bit of that in you yeah i mean you know you're you're a bit of a performer and i uh, went okay all right uh, i'm not a pastor but yes okay but so um it's not an either or but i do believe that Positions of power attract people who want power. Positions of glory attract people who are narcissistic and who love glory. And when you get the right combination, it just explodes. But um, by and large, it's a character fault of a person rather than the church's fault. The church may have lacked discernment to see a narcissistic personality and not hire them. Um, but the, it's a character, it's a, it's a bad character problem that then explodes into full, full flame in certain churches. And, um, I, I think, I think it's the position of power and authority that attracts these people. And, and let's face it, a lot of them are driven. They, they have ambition. 
they love to work and they'll get butts in the seats. Mm -hmm. And so before long, you've got a power mongering narcissistic leader who behind uh, curtains and closed doors is mean as a snake and on the pulpit sounds perfect, um, who at home is violent with children and spouses. Um, it's just really sad. And we, we need to have some um, discernment to recognize this in people. Where does the role of um, psychology and psychological testing come in here? You know, I know as a Methodist pastor, you do not get uh, approved for any kind of ministry without a whole battery of psychological tests. And I know that that is not the be all end all, but, but what about as one of the uh, requirements in reference to uh, pastors, uh, in reference to whether we even accept someone to be a pastor is to have them subject, subject themselves to these batteries of tests that uh, might indicate. Okay. Did you take any at Duke? I, well, I took it years ago when I entered in. Yeah. A whole battery is there all day. We do it now. Okay. At Duke? Is it, or was no, it no, it's just with in the, the method? Every conference. Uh, uh, well, I, I totally believe in this. Uh, my wife's a psychologist. So, Alan, the Methodist Church is doing it right on that. Now, it's not going to weed out them all, no. but it should. If they take, did you take the MMPI? Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, the MMPI is going to get some pretty significant results. Yeah. You know, they, they use the uh, Myers Briggs and stuff like that. That's, that's, you know, that's like playing wiffle ball when you can play hardball. Yeah. Uh, and so I believe, I believe this is important. And uh, I'm firmly committed to the importance of that for a, uh, for a denomination like the Methodists and that they're wise. The non-denominational churches don't have this as a general rule. And they are also unaccountable to, aren't you a bishop? To bishops like Alan Bevere. Yeah, I mean, I, they, yeah. They're, all, they're all on their own. So we have a double, a double whammy possibility in non-denominational churches who neither test candidates with a psychological profile nor have any accountability. They can claim all they want for elders and deacons. They're almost never powerful enough and astute enough in theology or charismatic enough to defeat the powerful pastor. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. I think you guys are doing it right. And I want to commend you for it. It has to be done. Yeah, we've done that for years, for 30 years. The other thing I was going to say to you that I can remember as I was reading your first section uh, of the book uh, in reference to some of the toxic stuff going on at certain churches, that I can remember 25 years ago, our conference was putting in place a sexual harassment policy. And so there was accountability there. But I will also say, and that's why I really wanted to probe this a little bit with you, because in my experience teaching as an adjunct, the stories I've heard from students who came out of abusive church situations, I want to say eight out of 10 times, it was a non-denominational independent church. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I, I think I, I gave some, some of the things that I think about that as to why that's happening, is mm -hmm. that there's no accountability right? and there's no testing. Well, Okay, uh, they can bring people in, but they don't have the character that is yeah. needed. 
Um, nine times out of 10. I'm, no, I'd, say, I'm, I'd say eight out of 10. You know, I didn't actually. I'm impressed. I should have kept a record, but, but, but I, I, over the years as I heard these stories, it just was more often than not, these were independent churches, um, non-denominational churches. And there was, it was real clear. There was no accountability. The pastor, uh, and it was, it was exclusively male. Uh, it was the pastor and the pastor had the board or whatever, uh, uh, he was folks in leadership. He surrounded himself with, and he, sur and you were telling stories about this, you know, they had surrounded themselves yeah. with people who were just going to, uh, you know, yeah. say yes to whatever. Yeah. Oh, Alan, this is, uh, I think this is, this is insightful for me. I'm so glad you brought this up because I had never thought about it that way. I guess I could have guessed. Someone would ask me, but um, uh, the the at, at least the majority of these problems that you're seeing are people who are in independent churches. Yeah. This is um, another reason to be involved in a denomination, another reason to take the MMPI, and to have this follow you yeah. as you go along in your career. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. You know, that now let's just say that it's not impossible for an independent church to put these things in place. You know, you can get you can get a, a pastor pastor who is a person of high character who wants to be accountable and can say, I want to put things in place to be accountable. And even in an independent church can begin to create that kind of culture. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I believe it. But just think about it this way, Alan, when you are in an independent church. Yeah. Let's just say you're at a, uh, you're at you're at Ashland Community Church. We'll call it that. I don't. Is there a church like that in Ashland? Uh, we've got churches like that. I don't know if that's the name or not. Okay. So I'm you're not good. talking about any you're community good. church. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, Ashland Community Church is calling a pastor. They're going to get names of recommendations from people. They don't have a denominational authority. Yeah. Who knows? a leader who knows this pastor, who has seen the results of the MMPI. And if you bring someone in, you can't ask them to go through eight hours of psychological exams and evaluation uh, in the process of vetting candidates. It's just not gonna happen. Yeah. So this this is something that falls to the wayside and yeah. it's uh, it's very problematic. You know, we don't we don't do this at a seminary either. We don't we don't have to have an M MMPI to get hired at Northern Seminary. Yeah. I imagine most seminaries don't have that. Probably not. I've never heard of one that does, or a Christian college. Yeah. So um, we're reaping the whirlwind on this. Yeah. So a church so a church takes a pastor who's the narcissist, uh, misses that, misses the signs. Uh, it can be easy to miss, particularly if you don't know a lot about the person. But then after a while, it becomes clear. We've got a toxic culture going on. What is it that keeps a certain percentage of people in that church on the pastor's side and, and support the pastor? Oh, well, number one, they probably have um, benefited spiritually. They've okay. grown. They've enjoyed the sermons. Mm -hmm. They baptized their ch children. Uh, they married their adult children. Uh, they buried their grandfather or they buried their family member. I mean, there've been a lot of things that that pastor has done for them. And the church is successful in that sense. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, a church is not simply a place we go, but it becomes a network 
to the point that it becomes a family. Yeah. I mean, when we, uh, we were in Florida for three weeks, so it was very pleasant to be in some nice weather. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we missed the people, uh, we missed the people at our church. We, we miss getting together with the people at our church on, um, you know, every other week. I think that's how often it is. We, we get together with our small group on Zoom. Yeah. And because we know one another and we can't touch one another, you know, but we see one another's faces and we know one another, we, we are in contact. We miss, we miss these people. That's another reason they stay. Yeah. And it's disruptive and it's painful to get rid of a pastor. It, it's going to cause division. People are going to get angry. Some people are going to leave. The church budget is going to be an impact. All those things keep those sorts of people there. Yeah. None of which are, um, are the best of reasons to keep pastors around, although the network is important. You don't want to leave. But um, it's, it's, churches are a complicated, complex, glorious, connected family. Yeah. And that's what it should be. Uh, but it also means it's not going to change quickly and easily without disruption. I read uh, somewhere, and I can't even think now, it was a long time ago, but this uh, was suggesting that to change a culture of a church, it takes approximately 10 years. You think that's fair? Alan, this summer, uh, in a, um, I think it was a DMIN course. I had a student in the class who, um, I don't know why he was in the class. He did a, a PhD in organizational transformation. Mm. And, and Tove came up. And I, so I explained what, what this book is about. And this guy just sat there. I didn't, he hadn't said that much. He had talked, but he had, I didn't know what he had done. And at the end, he says, uh, he says, Scott, he said, I did a PhD in this topic. And he, I said, oh, I said, what do you think of my ideas? And he said something like this. They're pretty good ideas, but you aren't using the right terms. <laughs> I said, what terms are you talking about? So he started using organizational transformation terms. And um, he, he, he started talking about the theory of changing cultures. And then he said, and I want you to understand this, in organizational transformation studies, we say it takes seven years to change an organization's culture if the whole culture is committed to change. So yep. 10 years allows for a lot of Augustinian sinfulness to take root and fight the, fight the change. Yeah. <laughs> is it okay to use Augustinian with a Wesleyan? It is okay, I say, but being a Wesleyan, we do have that, uh, that, that we do believe in the spirit and transformation too, so. <laughs> Uh, let me, so let me, let me throw you at a conundrum. You know, Alan, that was exactly my response to students. I said, well, we've got grace and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy side. Spirit. I mean, I he agree. said, he said, okay, six years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always bristle a little bit. When I say, look, we got the sin part. We know that. And that's clear, but yeah. you know, I think the spirit works. So, so an interesting, the other thing I was thinking as I was reading through your book, and again, this is a mainline uh, independent church difference is of course the pastor can uh, stay too long in a congregation and I think everybody would agree that sometimes 
a pastor who's been somewhere for 30 years can be too long and, and can, 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 you know, develop uh, some, some bad habits and some things that lead to toxicity and culture. Um, but I, I, you know, in, in our context where I have a bishop who appoints, um, you know, we have, we have uh, pastors who move uh, long before, you know, and here, here what I'm thinking of is the, is the good pastors, the pastors who, who are capable of working toward cre creating this Tove culture or, yeah. or helping to encourage this Tove culture. And they're there five years, six years, and they get moved. Yeah. And there goes that. <sighs> uh, and so on, so, so, you know, we don't have that many church pastors. We get pastors who are in churches 10, 11, 12 years, but that is probably less common. Um, you know, very, very seldom do we get a pastor who's in a church for 20 years. That can happen, but it's really rare. So, you know, what, how, how can a, a, a church that's struggling with, a, with its culture uh, and maybe not completely toxic, but have enough toxicity that changes really need to be, be made, how can you do that in a church where pastoral leadership is going to change five to six years? Well, I, I, I also want to say that uh, it, it, uh, the, the shifting, and I've, I've never been a fan of this Methodist style, but I've, I've heard some pretty good defenses, um, including some from you uh, at dinners with uh, Nottingham students. Yeah. But um, I think there's some wisdom in, in not allowing a pastor to take so deep a root that it becomes a pastor-centered church. Yes, I agree. So that this, this keeps a pastor from becoming the focus of the church. That's a good thing. The other side of it is, is that uh, in our book, we talk about cultures as agents. A church, let's just say a church, um, just look at the ground level. Uh, the, the, the people of the church are acting and they act up uh, and, and before long, all their actions almost form into a personality, an agent. And that agent moves back down and starts to influence in them so much that they all start to fit in. David yeah. Brooks' famous statement that uh, never, uh, never underestimate the power of an environment to make you the kind of person that works in that environment. Right. But uh, at the same time, there's another circle that we talk about. Leaders, if we talk at the top of a circle, influencing through their teachings, narrative, et cetera, personality, the congregation. The congregation then can influence the pastor. And so it can become a circle of cultural influence. If you keep removing the pastors, there is a greater likelihood that the culture is determined by the congregation. Now you have a good analytical tool to say, look, You've only had oh, this pastor for three years and that pastor for four and this pastor for two. You know, the only thing that hasn't changed is you folks. Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk about that. So I think that the, the Methodists have a particularly good opportunity to talk about Tove culture formed by congregations, yeah. shaped by congregations. Yeah. And in our history that, you know, in our history, that was, <clears throat> you know, the congregations basically handled the you know, the old circuit riding preachers. I mean, the preacher shows up once a month to do baptisms and yeah. weddings and, and funerals and lead some worship. But the, the weekly uh, duties was, were the congregation and the lay leader who basically yeah. was in charge. And, 
And so, so the one thing that, I mean, I have defended itineracy in that it does help to prevent against this embedded pastor centered church. Yeah. But it also sometimes doesn't allow a good pastor to lead the kind of change that can have a lasting impact if that pastor is moved too soon. That's always been my concern. Yeah, well, I, I would agree with that. And uh, that's why uh, nurturing discipleship in a congregation is even more vital for a Methodist church. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm more nervous today, I'll be honest with you, about these charismatic pastors who create pastor-centric churches. Yeah. And look, this is, I don't know what the story is in a Methodist church, but uh, it's routine said at our seminary that when a pastor leaves, you can count on 25% of the congregation leaving. Yeah. Just because of that pastor. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I would hope in a Methodist church, because there's been more turnover, that that would not be the same kind of number. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm... Our situation, I think it's, I think it's all different. But I, I would say this: that um, you know, if you have a pastor at a Methodist church, we'll say, let's use the year seven. It's been seven years. Uh, if that person has been pretty charismatic and pretty dynamic, yeah. then it will be a problem for the next person, even in seven years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's a problem no matter what. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting to think about the differences. So Scott, so I, I don't want to. We can't end this without talking. What's a tove? What's a tove culture look like in a church? Well, to me, I, I would summarize it with uh, one word: Christ likeness. Uh, there, there's a, a sense that Jesus is at work. That people are going to encounter, encounter Jesus in this church. But our, our characteristics are a Tove church has empathy. And an, an empathic person feels the pain with other people. So it has sympathy and empathy. It nurtures grace. And grace understood in the great categories of John Barclay's new book, the Paul and the Gift, yeah. where it's it's multiple. It's not just, you know, God loves me and I'm a sinner and I, I deserve to go to hell. Um, and I'm just plain lucky to be one of the elect. Although if I'm a Methodist, I better hang on. Um, but grace is uh, uh, the power of God's culture, uh, the, the power of God's presence to transform us yeah. and to make us uh, the kind of person we should be. It puts people first. You know, Alan, your congregation your people value that you know their name. This is what it's about. You know, I remember telling a student many years ago, who's a student teacher, he said, the student in the front row hates me. I said, how do you know? He said, he doesn't like anything I say. And I said to him, what's his name? He said, I have no idea. I said, okay, you learn his name and here's your, your, your responsibility. You go out, you you get out the door when the students are coming into class. And when that student comes in, you greet him by name. And you come back to me in two weeks and tell me what it's like. Well, he didn't come back in two weeks. I saw him about a month later. I said, how's, how's class? He said, great. I said, how's that student? Oh, yeah. He said, we've become friends. Yeah. And he learned his name. I mean, 
we need to make people, we need to put people first. And I, I don't think I am great at this, but I, I know that students value when I know their name or remember their paper yeah. or remember something that they did three years ago. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not as good at this as I'd like to be, but um, you know, I like my students. We tell the truth. A true culture doesn't lie. It doesn't spin false narratives. When someone got fired, you have to say they had to be released. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to say they were awful, um, but you don't say, you know, the Lord called them somewhere else. Yeah. That's just spinning. And one of the big things for us is learning to resist false narratives. Yeah. We, we do the right thing. Uh, a a Tov culture is about justice, but justice today is almost like a political statement. It means social justice. It means you're fighting, you know, you're fighting in DC against Donald Trump or something like this. And in the Bible, justice is about the will of God revealed in the Torah of Moses, in the teachings of Jesus, life in the spirit. And justice is doing that. It is doing the right thing at the right time. It also nurtures service. We have a tendency in churches to create celebrity cultures for pastors. Mm -hmm. This turns everything upside down. We don't have any celebrities. Jesus is the only celebrity. And we need to nurture that we are all servants. And I, I tell my students, you need to be involved in service in your church. And you can't tell anybody but your spouse. And maybe she goes with you or he goes with you. Don't do homeless feeding and then get up on Sunday morning and talk about homeless feeding. Now you're getting celebrity culture glory for service. And this is the opposite. It should attack our pride and uh, in a sense, push us down yeah. rather than make us glory. You know, I used to always say this about Mother Teresa. She's famous. Yeah her work with the poor. Now, she really did work for the poor, so she's a great example, but not uh, the problem. But I do think we have too much of a celebrity culture. To me, all of this is summarized that a Tove culture looks like Christ. Yeah. And it, it can say in the cheesiest of ways, what would Jesus do here? How, how do I discern as a follower of Jesus to live in this situation? Yeah. And the more we do that, uh, the more we're going to build a Tove culture at a church. Yeah. Yeah, I remember many years ago in a previous church I served, um, uh, somebody apparently had found out I had my PhD and came up to me one day after church and said, I didn't know you had a PhD. And I said, well, I, I didn't really know how to respond. And she said, well, why didn't I know this? I said, well, you never asked me, <laughs> you know. Well, so, it's good that you're not pumping it from the pulpit. I no, mean, no, no, it's not. I have, I have students who get demons and then they have, they insist on being called yeah, Dr. No, so and so. I think, no, 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 no. I'm Alan, Pastor Alan. I tell folks, call me what you want. And I said, I get names called behind my back. I'm sure that I said, so just call me whatever you want. But, uh, yeah. you know, some people feel the need to do that. And that's fine if that's how they feel. But, you know, I, I, uh, I, I think we need to, I, 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 you know, I, and I want to say too also in reference to some of these pastors to go kind of go back to what we were talking about, that I think there are pastors who go into this thing really, really wanting to serve, really wanting yep. to be pastors, serve their congregations. And yet after a while, the pressure that's put on them 
to uh, do all these things that we that that we uh, attribute to successful churches today can actually take them out of that uh, what I would call a, a, a tove posture. Yeah, yeah. The posture is so great. We you know we need to get young families again. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need youth. We're looking to the pastor. And by the way, you need to make sure you visit everybody. And so all this stuff's put on these pastors. So you get a pastor who comes into this with the best of intentions and with the best of motives. And over time, they get kind of pushed out of that because we have, uh, we've developed something that is just not something that is going to foster what you're, what you're arguing. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I do think that, uh, you know, Alan, I've met, pastors who, and you know them more than I do, who the ministry would just wore them out. Yeah. Uh, it kind of broke them. And they just don't have the zeal for the Lord. And they don't, they're just kind of paying, paying their dues and checking the clock. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, and part of that is they, they didn't manage their, their heart, their life. Well, well, that's right. Yeah. And, but um, it is a, it is a demanding job. And I think that the servant dimension of it can get lost in the leadership dimension of it, the fundraising dimension of it, the ambition of it. And we just need, we need more good bishops who can work with the pastors and say, you're doing fine. Just spend some time in prayer. You need a day off. Uh, you know, that, that kind of pastoral work that they need as well. So. Well, so let me ask you one question, one last question before we finish this. And again, appreciate your time. But, uh, you know, I do have, I do have uh, a fair amount of pastors who, who will be watching this. What would you like to say to them? Um, you know, Alan, I, this, this is something I tell my students all the time. First of all, you're a Christian, not a pastor. Secondly, you need to be someone who prays. Mm -hmm. You need you need to nurture your relationship with the Lord. And I think if you keep these two things straight in front of you, it will help your marriage, your family, your church, and your ministry. So I would encourage people to, now that means reading their Bible too, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a Bible guy, um, but uh, be a Christian. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Mark Allen Powell wrote that great book, What Do They Hear? Pastors read the Gospels and identify with Jesus preaching to a congregation. The lay people read it. And they identify with the disciples uh, hearing Jesus call them to, to live the way they should. Hmm. They need to be disciples first hmm. rather than preachers first. So. All right, Scott, I really appreciate that. Folks, this is the book, A Church Called Tove and Pastors. Please get it, read it. It's really good. It's, uh, you'll find it to be very helpful for you. Scott, one thing I appreciate about you as a scholar is you are concerned about the pastors and writing for pastors. You know, the, the, as you and I both know, the scholarly guild writes often for itself, which is important. It's important the scholars talk. Yeah. But we, in my opinion, need more uh, scholars who do what you do, who uh, want to talk to the pastors and the folks in the pew in ways that are substantive and yet also clear and readable. So I appreciate well, 
I appreciate you saying that. That's true. I care about pastors. Um, I'm sad that this book had to be written because I wrote a book called Pastor Paul that's entirely positive, not critical. And um, I, you know, this, there's negative stuff about, about pastors in this book, but my, I have um, constant um, admiration for the work that pastors do. Yeah. I know how hard it is. Yeah. And uh, I want to be here to help you. Well, you help us out. And by the way, speaking of Pastor Paul, um, I hope you'll sometime come back and talk to me about that book. Um, I, uh, I have to tell you a little story when that book came out. Uh, I had to teach a course. It was a last minute thing years ago, a last minute thing on Paul as pastor. So I was doing this thing on the fly, pulling stuff from everywhere I could get just to have some kind of semblance of a course. And I said to myself, someone needs to write a book about this. <laughs> so you have delivered. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh, and it's it's amazing how little I found about this. Yeah. There's and, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy says this, and so does Tom. I quote them both in the book is that both of them say, we have to see him first as a pastor. Yeah. So, very good. All right. Fred, All right. thank you, my friend. And uh, Thank you. Uh, I don't know if you'll be in San Antonio in November or not, if we even have it there. But Planning. But uh, that's, that's a good place to have it. It's a good place to have it. So, all right, folks. Uh, Scott McKnight, thanks, Scott. And we'll see you all uh, again soon. Take care. Thank you, Alan.